Well, good morning to you all. My name is Larry Neese, and uh, it was my privilege to serve on staff here at Grace Fellowship for about 15 years on the pastoral staff as uh, the outreach pastor. And uh, every once in a while, they invite me back just so I don't get too rusty in uh, being up here. But it's an honor. Mary and I uh, call this our church home because it is, and we are deeply committed to the church and to this church. Now, I have to tell you a little story that happened a couple of weeks ago. It was my first experience at bone fishing. Now, the occasion was that Mary and I were off on a once-in-a-lifetime experience celebrating our 50th wedding anniversary. And as we were doing that, she agreed that we would go on a short little fishing expedition. She's not a, a fisherman. And so uh, we hired two Mexican guides, Mosquito and Juanito, believe it or not. So Mosquito and Juanito were our guides, and we got into their, their narrow boat, uh, meeting them at 6 a.m. at the dock, and they fired up their engine, and they buzzed us about 45 minutes along the edge of the, the Gulf of Mexico to this flat area amongst the mangrove vegetation. When we got there, Mosquito signaled to me, and he jumped out of the boat, and I jumped out of the boat. Fortunately, it was only about up to your knees, and it was uh, nice warm water. And, uh, and that's where it all began. Now, I have uh, caught a few fish, Tennessee fish, here on my fly rod over the years, and I have read about the thrill of bone fishing, and now... It was my moment. Now, I know what you are all thinking. You are thinking, what in the world is a bonefish? Well, I want you to see they're a rather cute-looking fish, don't you think? Uh, and they are about 15 to 30 inches in length, and they have that, that big dorsal fin that sticks up out of the water, and that's, that's the key thing. And so, but even though a restaurant is named after them, uh, you won't find them on the menu because they have a lot of bones and they, you can't really cook it up and eat it very easily. So Mosquito signaled to me and we began to walk and hunt. And we were like radar scanning those mangrove trees. And what were we looking for? Well, we were looking for the telltale sign of those dorsal fins that you can see swirling in the top of the water. And occasionally, Mosquito would signal me and point, and sometimes I would see it first and signal him and point. And then when I saw it, I took my fly line and I unfurled that fly and dropped it right close to the water where we saw the fish. I waited a moment, and then, wham! This fish, strong and cute, grabbed that fly and took off, screaming the line off of my reel. Now, do you want to see a picture of the fish? Uh, so do I. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, actually, I did catch the fish, but uh, Mary, my photographer, was still in the boat on the other side of the mangrove vegetation by now. So 
just use your imagination. If you would do me a favor, picture that fish as like the 30-inch variety, uh, if you would. Now, I find it really interesting that when Jesus called his 12 disciples, four of them were fishermen. And when he called Peter and Andrew, Matthew records what Jesus said to them. And he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, or as we would understand it today properly, of men and women. And immediately they left their nets, which is their identity and their livelihood and their lifestyle, and they followed him. To me, it's very significant that we find fishermen showing up amongst the disciples and Jesus saying, I will make you fishers of men and women. It reminds me of those early chapters in our Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, as you will recall, that very somber, uh, terrible day when Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit and immediately they felt the guilt and they felt the shame. And when the Lord God, it says, was walking in the garden on the cool of the day, they ran and hid themselves behind the trees. And the Lord God called out to them, where are you? He He knew exactly where they were. He knew exactly what had happened. He knew exactly the condition of their heart and their spirit and what they were struggling with and the lostness that they were for the very first time experiencing, just like he knows everything about you and everything about me. But what we see in those opening chapters in our introduction to God himself, who is this God, is that he is a God who seeks the lost, in order to restore them. I love the way that Luke captures the mission of Jesus when he was here on earth. Luke says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Now, I understand pretty thorough, well, as thoroughly as I can as a human being, the save part. He's the savior. He came and took upon himself as the innocent lamb of God, the sins of the world on that cross. He experienced the wrath of God in judgment for that sins so that he can offer to you and I and to all humanity the forgiveness of sins by faith in him. That's the saving part. He came to save us. He came to be the savior, to become the savior. But what strikes me is the seeking part. The seeking part. That the Lord is a God who seeks. The Lord is a God that doesn't slam the door shut and throw us out. He is a God who keeps on pursuing. And we may be running, but he keeps on pursuing pursuing. God is a God who seeks. 
And that's what we're going to look at this morning as we consider what's happening with the 12 disciples and their experience with Jesus. Now, here's a key truth that I want us to focus on together. And that is, every day, God brings someone across your path for you to serve. Open your eyes, see them, serve them. Every day, God brings someone across your path for you to serve. Open your eyes, see them, serve them. Now, we have been engaged in a a short series called Imperfect Disciples. And in this series, we have been exploring and discovering that the disciples had all of the flaws of humanity in them that are are in us. They were impulsive and selfish. Uh, They were given over to cluelessness at times. And they were riddled with the cultural baggage of the prejudices and pride of their day and age. And in a three and a half year training period, Jesus took them through a transformation process. And at the end of that time, the Lord Jesus was arrested, crucified, resurrected, and ascended. And now it's the 12. The 12 and the Holy Spirit. The 12 and the Holy Spirit and the imprint of that training and that modeling that they saw in the Lord upon their lives. And the book of Acts says, these were the men who turned the world upside down. We're going to be looking today in Mark chapter 5. So if you want to follow along with us in your your Bibles and in your texts on your devices, uh, you can turn there. First, we will look at the biblical account that we read of in these opening 21 verses of Mark chapter 5, and then we'll close with a a short uh, consideration of five or three conclusions. So here's how Mark chapter 5 and verse 1 begins. They came to the other side of the sea into the region of the Gerasenes. Now, when I read that, What strikes me is I seem to be jumping right in the middle of a story here. What's going on here? They came to the other side. Well, what was the first side that that they came from? And this uh, region of the Gerasenes, it's it's not really a a known region to me. I mean, I, I don't understand what is happening. Well, here's what you need to know. If we backed up to chapter 4 which is the definitive context of this verse, we read that Jesus spent an entire day teaching the multitudes. I mean, thousands, perhaps, gathered around on the hillside along the Sea of Galilee in the northwest corner near near Capernaum. And Jesus is teaching, and we have recorded in Mark 4 a number of his parables. And by the end of the day, in the heat of that sun, he is exhausted. And he says to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. 
And the disciples take Jesus and they go into the boat and they start sailing and Jesus is fast asleep on the cushion on the deck of the, of the boat. A storm comes up and you know this story. The storm comes up and, and these fishermen, four of them professional boatsmen and fishermen out there on this lake were convinced they were going to die. And they wake Jesus up who is still sleeping. And Jesus stands and with a word, he calms the waters and the sea. And for the rest of that night of, of sailing and rowing, the disciples have a lot of thinking to do. What's going on here? Who, who is this man? You know, why are we going to this place, the region of the Cassanderites? Now, notice on this map, it'll help us get oriented a little bit. Uh, in Mark chapter 4, they are up on this side of the lake, the Sea of Galilee. It's about 8 miles wide and maybe 14 miles long. And they are going over to the other side, which is the region of Gadara. It's called in some uh, gospels. I think gospel, uh, Matthew uses that. And this is the region of the Decapolis. This, of course, is the Jordan River that leads to the Dead Sea. And on the other side of the Jordan River is Gentile territory. And so when Jesus said to the disciples, let us go over to the other side, he is taking them over to Gentile territory. In fact, the Decapolis was the center for the Greek and Roman culture at the time. And there are those who feel that uh, this was the place where the prodigal son, the younger son of the prodigal son, uh, parable, this is the far country that he flees to. You know that parable. The son comes to the father and says, give me my inheritance. He was confined by the strictness and the rules of the household, and he wanted out of there. So the father gave him his inheritance. And we read in that account that the prodigal son went to a distant country and squandered his estate in loose living. Well, this was that place, more than likely, that he's referring to. It was a decadent Gentile, Roman, Greek place. It was a place that no Torah-abiding Jew would ever live or would ever visit. And the disciples were probably wondering why. Why does Jesus want to take us to this God-forsaken place? And they were about to learn a graphic lesson as to how just far God will go as he is seeking a lost soul. Well, chapter 5 and verse 1, we read this verse. They came to the other side of the sea, to the region of the Gerasenes. And when he got out of the boat... Immediately, a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. 
Now, I was trying to put myself in the, uh, the sandals of these disciples. And if I was them, it would have been through the night, this trauma of thinking we were dying, and then this, this mystery of the, the sea being calmed, and now all the... I mean, they are exhausted. They just want a bed and breakfast. They want a warm place to sleep. They want a good meal. They want to dry off. They want to clean up. And here they arrive, and the welcoming party is a crazy man. And they're probably thinking, oh, no, Lord, give us a break from all that. You know what it reminds me of? Did you ever go shopping with your mother when you were little, grocery shopping? Now, my mom was, had the gift of communication. And uh, there may not be people listening, but she had the gift of communicating. And she never met a stranger. And I, when we would go grocery shopping as a little boy, I can remember that there were times when I'm thinking, okay, we're almost done. We're almost done. We're going to get out of here. And then we get to the checkout line. And you know what happens in the checkout line. Well, she meets these total strangers and they talk like they are long lost friends and got to catch up and all the news of their lives. So I'm kind of waiting for this to happen. And maybe there was a little bit of that sense of the disciples when they finally arrive back on land on solid ground again and this crazy band comes to welcome them. But you know, on the other hand, it may have fit the stereotype. It may be exactly what they thought happened in this Gentile territory. They're all crazy people over there. They're all decadent. They've, they've all lost something. They're crazy over there. So maybe it just amplified the stereotype that they had of what they would find on the other side. And there's a description of this man. Look at this description. How would you like this fellow as a neighbor? He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore. What does that mean? It means they kept on trying. It means that people in that town said, we got to do something. We got to constrain him. And so not even with a chain because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains have been torn by him and the shackles broken into pieces. No one was strong enough to subdue him. The property prices were going down in that town because of this guy. They were afraid to leave their children uh, on the street unattended because who knows when the crazy man is going to show up. There was this often at night, this screaming going on from the area of the cemetery because of this crazy man who was with them. Now, this crazy man, in some ways, does represent the world that we live in. But he was possessed of a legion of demons. Now, demonic possession is something that's still a reality in our world today. Peter, when he wrote his letter, 1 Peter, he said, Be on the alert for your adversary, the devil, seek, is prowling around seeking someone to 
devour. Now, in some cultures, demonic possession is still very overt. It's, it's very graphic. This would be maybe not a common scene, but not unusual for somebody in that culture to know of an incident like this. But I think in our culture in America, uh, Satan's strategy has been a little more subtle. He has been, over the generations, seeking to erode and corrupt and degrade the values and the assumptions and the beliefs that we hold to as a society. I mean, you can see that all over, can't you? There's an increase in the number of people in America who would check the box and say atheist or agnostic. And if you take atheism to its ultimate conclusion, you will end up always in the area of despair and disillusionment and hopelessness. And scientists, atheist scientists, have become the priests of this worldview. And speaking with authority, they make proclamations that are influencing the fabric of our culture. For instance, Bill Nye, the science guy, says, we are just a speck on a speck, orbiting a speck among other specks. Really inspiring, isn't it? Makes you want to get up in the morning and say, wow, I am glad to be a speck. And then you have, uh, you have Robert Dawk Richard Dawkins, who is uh, one of the premier antagonists to anything that smacks of being supernatural, hints of being supernatural. He's an evolutionary biologist who describes the world that we live in this way. There's nothing more there is no design, there is no purpose, there is no evil, no good. There is nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Let that soak in, let that soak in, maybe not too deeply, but I mean, that's where it all goes. Blind, pitiless Indifference. No wonder there's agony of the soul and spirit. And then Carl Sagan chimes in with his observation. We emerge from microbes and muck. We find ourselves in bottomless freefall, lost in a great darkness, and there is no one to send out a search party. And then we read that we have a God who from the very beginning, from the moment of humanity's worst day, came seeking in order to restore. Not only is there a search party, but God is leading the search party. If you've ever walked with someone who is wrestling seriously with suicide, 
Though we may not be able to understand it, there is a depth of agony of the soul that they just need relief from, for the most part. They, they can't find a way out. They just want it to end. They, they need to turn off the power switch to get some relief. Now, the people that God brings you near your door hopefully are not as overtly crazy as this man from the tombs. But I guarantee you that many of those people that God will bring across your path are in agony of spirit, are facing the abyss of hopelessness, helplessness, who need some reason to hold on, some way to find hope again. Open your eyes, see them, serve them. Now, I think you know the rest of the story. Jesus confronts the demons in this demonized man. And the demons, he, he gives them permission to enter the pigs. It was a herd of pigs in the area. And he gives permission for them to go into the pigs. And the, the, the swine are now in a frenzy. And coming out of the unclean, coming out, the unclean spirits enter the swine. The herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea. And notice this, about 2,000 of them. And they were drowned in the sea. Now picture this for a moment. First, you have this crazy man. And then you have Jesus healing him, casting out those demons. They go into 2,000 pigs. Now you have 2,000 crazy pigs who are squealing and in a confusion. And they rush to the precipice and they go over the side and they all disappear. And now, what do you hear? Silence. <laughs> Silence. And it's, it's like, wow, what just happened? <laughs> what just happened? And the herdsmen of the pigs, 2,000 is not a small number, by the way. It was probably the whole community's pigs, ran into town. And, and they told the townspeople, hey, you got to come out here. I mean, this... It's emergency. Pull the emergency switch. Come out. And so they come out and they find a holy man, Jesus, and his ragtag group of men. And they see the man who is formerly demon-possessed sitting there clothed in his right mind. And they're looking back and forth and they're assessing things and there's no pigs and they say to Jesus, it's really interesting, in verse 17, they began to beg him to leave their region. Just leave. We'll take care of the pigs. Just leave. They were begging him to leave. And I'll notice this, verse 18, and as he was getting into the boat, he was leaving. The man who had been demon-possessed was begging him. So this man is begging them too, and he's saying that he might accompany him. Now, if somebody had come into your life and delivered you from this impossible life affliction that you had, 
And you would want to follow him too. He now is your life. He is your savior in more ways than one. And so this man wanted nothing more than just be with this man, even though it had only been a few minutes perhaps that he had known Jesus. Uh, he, he wants to go, I've got to go with you. I mean, this is my life. This is my life. <laughs> and you know, I, I, can, I can imagine all of the townspeople are standing around saying, yes, yes, go with him, take him, get him out of here. Let's take a vote. And all the townspeople raise their hand, yes, let's get rid of him. We'll take care of the bill. Don't worry about anything. Just take this man who has terrorized our community and take him with you. And what Jesus does is totally unexpected from my vantage point. And he, oh, it should, I think it should say, it did not let him. But he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. I didn't see that coming when I read this. I mean, I would think Jesus said, yeah, come on, more than, we have just enough room for you. But now he says, no. And what this says to me is that while every follower of Christ is, uh, is joining the mission of Christ, which is to be a part of seeking those who are lost and serving those who are lost, sharing the message of salvation with them and ministering to them, while every believer is called to that, some believers like Peter and Andrew are called to go. They are called to leave their nets, leave everything behind. This is a radical change in their lives and they are called to leave everything even to go to the other side. To go to the Gentile territory, to go to the hostile territory, to, to go where they, they despise and, and renounce the name of God, go there. Some are called to do that, but there are others like this demonized man who are called to stay home. Keep on fishing, keep your job, but add this to it. Tell everyone what the Lord has done for you. Share with them his mercy and his grace for them. But we are all on mission with God. It's interesting that uh, Tom Wright makes the observation, the theologian, that this formerly demonized man is really the first apostle to the Gentiles. Interesting when you think of it. If you're a student of the scriptures, you know that Paul is called the apostle to the Gentiles. But Paul is still an unbeliever at this point. That comes later. So here's this demonized man who becomes an apostle to the Gentiles, one of the hardest mission fields in that area. And what is fascinating about this is we read in other places of the gospel, they talk about 
In Matthew 4, it talks about large crowds following Jesus from Judah and Jerusalem and from the Decapolis and the other side of the Jordan. I mean, we have evidence, even in history, this region became an enclave of the early Christian church, a responsiveness that was there. And it makes us wonder if many, many believers in those early centuries can trace their spiritual heritage back to a formally demonized man. You see, this is exactly what this man did in verse 20. He went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. Now, the end of our story comes in verse 21, just the first part of the verse. And it's a little shocking to me, actually, for... uh, It says, when Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side. Now, the other side is Capernaum, where he originally started. And why this is so shocking to me is I'm thinking, okay, now, wait a minute. Let me me just get the story straight here, Jesus. You left a multitude, adoring crowds, responding, responding, hanging on your every word. You left a place where we were just building momentum. We were, we were getting a thing going here. It was a movement taking place. And you left that and you took your key men on this arduous journey where almost every one of you perished in that storm and you go through the night through all of that effort and you're as weary as anything. You arrive on the other side and you are met by a crazy man and townspeople who tell you to leave. And you did leave. And you did all of that for one soul. One person. One person. Three conclusions for us to consider. First of all, God is actively seeking those in need. The marginalized, he doesn't marginalize. The hurting, he doesn't avoid. The crazy people, he doesn't avoid. He moves toward them. He is looking for them. He is seeking them. And I love the mission statement of Grace Fellowship Church, helping broken and vulnerable people find new life in Christ. Now, isn't that just a summary of what we have been looking at here? Helping broken and vulnerable people find new life in Christ. And if you are a Christ follower, if you are going to choose to follow Jesus, you need to know this is not just for all the benefits. 
It's also for the responsibility. You are signing on to his mission. You are signing up to be a part of his army. You are now one of his foot soldiers to help him seek and serve the lost. The second conclusion is God brings lost souls to you for you to serve. You you don't see them. I don't see them all the time. It's like, oh, you know, accidental connections or standing in that grocery line or whatever it is, uh, a sales call, you know, whatever it might be, the Lord is bringing people into your life already for you to see. They're divine appointments. And then lastly, the third one, open your eyes. See them. Serve them. That's why bone fishing is so good. It's because you are trained, you're, you're in the shallows, you're, you're looking, you're looking, you're looking for the evidence, you're looking for the stirring of God's spirit and you want to be available to be a fisher of men and women. Tomorrow morning, when you get out of bed and your feet land on that carpet or that tile uh, or that wooden floor, I encourage you to shoot this prayer up to the Lord. Lord, who is my one today? Who are you sending to me today? Open my eyes. Help me to see. Help me to serve. Who is my one? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the grace that you give us, that you pour out, that is undeserving. We thank you for the the kindness that you express to us when we we really deserve condemnation. We, We deserve your wrath, your impatience, but Lord, you are patient with us. We thank you for saving this demonized man, for delivering him. We look forward to uh, hearing his story in person when we get to heaven. And Lord, we know there are so many others who are trapped in the agony, uh, the internal nightmare of the soul. And they may be looking good on the outside and life is fine. And in fact, circumstantially, everything may be great. But on, on the inside, there's an emptiness. There's a hopelessness. There's a sense of thinking, well, what's this all about? And I ask, Lord, that your spirit would uh, help us to be on mission with you. Help us to be followers of Jesus Christ in a way that we can be ambassadors of yours, that our eyes could be open and that we could have a part in, uh, 
in, in reaching out and making a life change for that person by introducing them to you. So, Lord, we commit our way to you with thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen.